Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Where are we in the cycle? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, August 31st, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Warren Pies, co-founder of 314 Research. Warren, welcome back to Real Vision. Yeah, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to have you here. Listen, Warren, we were chatting a little bit before the show went live. Obviously, this is an interesting moment for markets. Where do you think we are right now? Big picture, 50,000 foot view. Ooh, um, as we talked about before the show it's a that's the question i think on everyone's mind you know I, this has been a year that's thrown most forecasters for a loop we came into the year uh where with a record number of forecasters calling for a recession and so the consensus was as tightly formed as i've ever seen it around the macro economy and obviously the stock or the the economy did not uh comply with the forecasters and so our view just to be brief and i think anyone who's followed us on real vision or followed us on social media and knows where we stand is our view was that uh, we would have a range bound longer cycle uh, in the first half of the year. And then we would be in recession by the second half of the year. And we, even with our elongated cycle view have been off, I think on underestimating the durability of the underlying economy. So the, here we are in the second half uh, after a big rally. And the question is, when the big question to me is when does the recession come and, and right. that's on everyone's mind our best guess at this point in time is q2 of next year and that is a, a an answer with false precision there's nobody knows when the recession is going to come i think that's it's you can have a view but it's better to have a framework and so our framework focuses on the housing market and uh, what happens with the jobs jobs within the housing market. That usually leads the economy by about six months. We've seen some weakness there, but there's resiliency as well. So tomorrow with the jobs report, it's going to be a big number for us. It'll keep up, either continue with that trajectory we've laid out to a Q2 recession or uh, show us that this cycle could be shorter or longer than that. So that's the framework that we're going to use to navigate uh, this cycle. And obviously, where you place that recession on your timeline is going to dictate your order, your hierarchy for assets, whether it's commodities, stocks, bonds, cash, how you want to position yourself. And so to me, that's the, uh, the big picture view is that we've got uh, a little bit of time left in the cycle, but we are a late cycle. It's not an early cycle in my view. And that's, uh, that's where we're at. Well, let's talk that through. One of the things that we've been hearing about from Jay Powell ad nauseum is this idea of long and variable lags uh, in terms of monetary policy having an impact on the real economy. Obviously, we've heard the same message very consistently from Mr. Powell, uh, which is this notion uh, that they believe that inflation remains a long-term threat, that they are going to continue to be restrictive. Uh, and now we have this question of how far that sort of can gets kicked down the road in terms of the impact, the spillovers into the real economy. As you said, the consensus for just about everyone was recession here in 2023. That can's gotten kicked out further. I'm hearing, as you said, actually consistent with your view, a lot of H224 for the onset of this 
recession. Uh, what are you looking at in terms of employment situation and other indicators to give you a sense of where we are on that trend uh, and how developed we are along that path uh, to get to what seems to be uh, a fairly large consensus for cons- for a recession forecast? Our number one, within our framework, our number one view is housing employment. And so um, if you think about it, we peaked in housing payrolls at the end of January of this uh, of this year. And we've kind of gone sideways from there. Uh, but this last month, we lost 5,500 jobs uh, out from residential construction payrolls. And as I said, you get about an 8 to 10% drawdown in residential construction or housing-related payrolls right before a recession. And so here we are, we're, we're just at the very early innings of this decline, in my view. Uh, so that's what that's the number one data point to tell me as, as a lead. You want to lead because by the time we see unemployment tick up or, or wages start to fall off, um, you really are too late to have got the positioning right on your, on within assets, which is what we really care about. So to me, you look for things that are leading. And the number one leading area, the channel that's going to um, transmit this Fed policy that we're seeing into the real economy is the housing market. And so we're looking for housing-related layoffs. So we had 5,500 layoffs uh, last month, a reduction in payrolls. We want to see a total of like 70,000 jobs lost in order to get us to that recession point. And so you can basically draw a straight line. If we were to lose five to 7,000 jobs a month from here, that puts us in the early part of 2024. Obviously, you don't really go on a straight line. These things kind of can stair-step. But that's the right. number one area we're looking at. Of course, there are subcomponents to that: housing starts and pricing and affordability and all and rates. And those are important factors that go into our model. But when we distill it down, it's that housing employment number that we look at. So when you talk about seventy thousand jobs as being uh, kind of the bogey in terms of the inflation forecast, excuse me, in terms of the recession forecast. But what's the time delay between when you get to those seventy thousand? Obviously, that's a cumulative number that you see month over month. Uh, that's your sort of net loss. Uh, what's the onset duration, the gap between that and when you believe you actually see the onset of recession? About six months is is six months from uh, that uh, full on drawdown. Or let me say it this way: you actually once you have that drawdown, the recession basically starts within a couple months. But you usually get that six month lead time where you can see the writing on the wall with those job losses coming down. It's just the, really the first segment. So call it six to two months of a lead time based on your cycle. Uh, I do think that if we're going to be totally honest about our, our tools and their shortcomings in this cycle, this is going to be one where we get possibly a little less lead time out of the housing economy. And that's because there is this underlying shortage of housing. And we've seen this with maybe the home builder stocks, which have been bid and home builders are still in this environment where They have fat margins and they're controlling the market. They're able to, um, they're able to buy down rates. So they're kind of counteracting some of this fed policy. So we're seeing national mortgage rates somewhere between seven and seven and a half percent, but these builders are able to buy down rates, which is just a monetary incentive ultimately on their end to that five and a half, six percent level and continue clearing houses. So these ingredients, fat margins on the builder side and ultimately, uh, 
a an undersupplied housing market give us a little less lead time but i still think that you're going to see you know in this this world we have so much of a, a we haven't even talked about the fiscal deficit we have which is kind of acting as a counterbalance to some of the fed policy in this world you have to really you know work hard to find those leading indicators i still think housing is going to be uh the best of a group of imperfect tools for this cycle boy a couple of points there you know, the first, this idea of buying down rates, I mean, it does imply that you might have this, uh, you know, kind of almost a pig in a python problem when you see this working through the system. Uh, those rates mean materially higher as those rates rise, obviously, and those incentives put on by the builders uh, to effectively reduce rates working against kind of Fed policy and tightening. Uh, what you have uh, ultimately is going to be ballooning payments, uh, which is going to significantly uh, have an impact on that market. You'd have to think when that eventually plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's it's a slow burn for now, but that's the that's the uh, it's all fine until it's not, you know. And and that's right. that's really the nature of the of the market. That's why you have to kind of have a. We've built out this it, you, really to get at it. You have to have multi factors that you're looking at, whether it's single family starts, multi family starts, the number of employees per unit, and all of those things are baked into our our estimate ultimately, and you really have to get fine grained with it. And then you have to look at builder margins because that tells you, you can say, okay, how high do mortgage rates go to basically take this buy down game um, off the table? And so there, there are a lot of moving parts and it could sneak up on us. I, I do. I think there's one of those, you could have one of those months where housing starts come in and especially if rates, I think rates, rate sensitivity around this level is really important. It's why as you see, in my view, it's why you've seen the equity market have such a violent reaction once we have rates go above 4% on the 10-year. And they've as rates have kind of relaxed here in the last 10 days with that jolts number that we got, that's where you've seen equities kind of firm. So everything is looking at that rate number ultimately on the long end, not on the short end, but on the long end. So the Fed's probably done hiking. Now the question is, what gets transmitted through the long end? And that's there's a bunch of stuff into that. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd, we'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need unfuck your future it just costs a dollar to join real vision to get access to all of this content go to realvision.com forward slash the future i'll see you there let's unfuck your future together warren let me ask you something here uh and this is just a kind of an imprecise term but how do you sort of factor in the weirdness factor of this 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 sense that we all have uh, who watch markets that we've never really seen anything like this right and we can talk about the unprecedented nature of these markets in, in a couple of different ways number one uh these weird rebound yo-yo effects that we've seen after the pandemic you you essentially shut the economy down uh, then you open it back up you throw on massive fiscal stimulus you get inflation that starts rising uh then you have to slam the brakes on by rising very quickly uh those rates uh, you know throw into this the fact that we've been in a 40-year bull market or thereabouts uh on bonds i guess the question is 
that when you when you look at your models, and I'm sure this is something you think about, when you look at these models, uh, how do you know that the historical correlations that we've seen hold true are going to hold true now? And if so, if they're going to be, you know, just slight modifications, maybe the, the lag or the delay changes a little bit. I mean, these are very complicated models. And obviously, as we've been saying, uh, you've been alluding to, we are in kind of just an unprecedented moment. Yeah, I think you have to have a few things, a few kind of rules of thumb in mind. For one, we always say strong opinions loosely held. And I think that that goes double for this cycle. You need to have a, an extra kind of dose of humility when you're doing your forecasting. We've, we've talked about the fiscal side for well over a year, introducing so much forecast uncertainty for everybody, you know, and you could have been, you, I've seen perma bulls take victory laps this year and they were wrong last year. And I've seen, um, I've seen bears get kind of down on themselves this year. I think you need to understand that this has been a really difficult cycle to go on and it will continue to be. And so I, I think just having strong opinions loosely held, number one. And it, we also have this phrase at 314 Research. It's that we build conviction off of fundamentals and macro, but we manage risk off of price and technicals. And the truth is you need to probably let the market lead you a little bit more this cycle because there is that collective wisdom of markets. Uh, and, and you could ob obviously you could pick holes in technicals all day long, but uh, you know, there's, there is a highly efficient market comprised of the world's smartest people trying to compete with each other and squeeze some alpha out of these things. And so if the market's moving against you, you better have a really good reason to, to maintain the current posture that you're in. And so like, for instance, I'll give you a real-time example. Um, we were pretty underweight equities through uh, from March uh, into through May. Uh, and we saw this massive divergence in the market, underlying market structure, where mega caps were leading the market higher and the rest of the market, the bottom 490 stocks basically were, were lagging. Extremely, extremely thin advance. Exactly. And, and so we started doing these studies of like, what happens when you get these divergences. And what we found is that really it's the breadth following the divergence that dictates the next direction. And it's gonna be a powerful direction. So we ended up uh, at the end of May, we got some good economic data. So of course, this is the market seeing that that recession is not a 2023 event. As that economic data came in, you saw the market broaden out to other se segments outside of the top 10 stocks. And that was the impetus for us to move our equity position higher and reduce our bond position. So we really went almost max underweight bonds in early June and pushed those chips into the stock market. And that's been, um, mm. we, we, while we came out of March wrong footed, that was, we had to reverse course and that was really based on technical. So that's what I mean by you have to build your, funda your, your fundamental conviction but then you manage risk on price. And sometimes you're going to be wrong with your view and price will tell you. So that was a real time um, example where we were fundamentally wrong in that broadening uh, rally uh, kind of signaled to us that, and along with the macro data, to be fair, that it was time to get a little bit more into equities and out of bonds. Yeah, I mean, S&P 500 up about 18%, as you know, year to date. Uh, obviously, this massive jump up in the 10-year uh, showing uh, that the prices have collapsed uh, significantly. But boy, what I hear you saying there uh, is when your macro thesis doesn't agree with the price action that you see in markets, that's time for your antennae to go up and to ask yourselves, boy, how convicted are we on this uh, and why? 
Yeah. Do you want to be right or do you want to make money? That's the old phrase. And uh, you, you ultimately, you you can't. There's a whole George Soros phrase that we 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 were writing about, which is, I'm. He, he says, I like being wrong. You know, I'm smart because I'm I am wrong and I know when I'm wrong. And and to me, there's a lot of power in invalidating a thesis and it being able to admit you're wrong. I think you lose money and you fall behind when you're when you allow yourself to yeah. stay wrong. In, in a position for too long. And so that to me has been, uh, those are wise words in, in my view is that you don't want to dig your heels in. And so given what you were saying, I mean, the, the, just as another example of things we've talked about is fiscal deficit at 8.5% of GDP right now. We're at an unemployment rate of 3.5%. We've never seen that combination. We've never seen this large of a fiscal deficit when unemployment was basically at three and a half percent, we had full employment. This is a pro-cyclical deficit. We've never seen that going all the way back to post-World War II time. We've never seen that. So we should all be very open to a range of outcomes that could um, be diverged from what we expect, you know? And so that's the, there's so many things like that when you talk about a weird cycle that we've seen where it's, uh, whether it's fiscal spending, right. uh, market structure, all, all types of things. So that's, um, that's the background that we're all trying to predict into right now. Boy, Warren, that's so well said. You know, I learned that lesson during the global financial crisis because I saw all these folks who were a lot smarter than me, uh, who had decades of experience in markets. I mean, not the whole world, but there was this percentage of them uh, saying, you know, this this cannot stand. You can't just dump money into uh, an economy via monetary policy and have the price of stocks rise. It's just wrong. I, I just, I disagree with it. I fundamentally disagree with it. And the people who took these ideological positions uh, who, you know, for whatever sort of philosophical reason were upset about the fact uh, that the Fed had cut to zero and stayed at zero for a long period of time and was buying bonds, doing massive quantitative easing. Some of these folks went went short equity markets and they got just crushed, absolutely blown out. Yeah, I can remember that time. And uh, it was a, actually a great learning experience for me because it, we, we the idea is if we're going to print dollars, we're going to have inflation. We're printing dollars through QE. We're going right. to have inflation. And uh, so you go short bonds was was the thought process. Uh, right, right. And I remember buying the ETF TBT, which is like an inverse bond ETF, lost some money. And that's what sent me down this road to um, modern monetary theory. Not that I adopt all of the precepts, but I, I found it very interesting because they actually were right. able to create a theory of the world that matched the outcomes I was seeing. And so to me, right. the lesson has been when you go through these new these odd times, look for potentially heterodox explanations for what's going on. So, I mean, there's the fiscal dominance theory that's been out there right now. And I've looked into that. I think it's extremely interesting. The idea is that the fiscal deficits are so large right now that the Fed is essentially powerless to tighten the economy. And we're actually, despite the fact that Fed funds rate has gone up to five and a half percent, the Fed's actually still behind the uh, curve on tightening the economy. Uh, I think there's some truth to that. I think there's some truth to that theory. At the very least, the economy right. is more resilient because of the fiscal side. Um, but at the same time, going, I, I still see evidence the Fed is tightening things, that the economy is slowing. That we're not early cycle. I go back to your first question: Where are we in the cycle? Everything points to late cycle. We're seeing default rates pick up in fixed income and leveraged loan markets. Right. Inverted yield curve is not an early cycle phenomenon. In bear steepening out of an inverted yield curve 
is not an early cycle phenomenon. These are late cycle issues. We've seen housing starts go from 110,000 single family starts per month to 70,000 single family homes per month. That's a transmission of monetary policy. We've seen CNI, commercial and industrial loans, on a six month basis begin to roll over into negative territory. That's a late cycle thing. So all these things point to late cycle. I don't wanna say we have no idea where we're at. I think we have a pretty good idea that we're late cycle. But for asset managers and the way that the, the path you travel can be very um, important for the reality, for your reality. So if we go through this next year, if it's six months for a recession, the path for asset markets can be way different than if it's 18 months for a recession. But I would argue in either right. case, you're still pretty much late cycle. Yeah, I mean, to your exactly that point, twos, tens went inverted, what, uh, in June of 2022? So we're coming up on the whatever it is, 15 month or so point uh, on that inversion in the yield curve. Yeah, and that's the, you can go back and everyone, this has been a classic debate. I think you do start second guessing yourself. These cycles kind of drag on and people start wondering, well, hey, does the, does the yield curve even mean anything anymore? And there's some, there's enough evidence or thought behind the theory that no, like maybe this is an outdated thing or it doesn't matter anymore. But I've always been of the opinion that the yield curve, it's not a reflection of a recession is coming. It's actually causing a recession Typically, it's causing a recession because it's actually upending the banking, uh, the modern banking business model. So you're no right. longer able to lend short, borrow short, lend long because of the inverted yield curve. So it, by definition, starts to choke off uh, loan creation and money growth. And we're seeing that again, yeah. back to CNI loans rolling over. But there are really two ways to create money. You can create money through a fiscal deficit and fiscal spending and through the banking economy. And that's the problem when you're running big deficits is that you have to punish the banking economy um, a lot in order to bring the economy, uh, to break the economy enough to slow. That's my, that's at least how I see it. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, and that's where you see compression of net interest margins. That's where you see uh, the CNI lending contraction. That's where you see what we saw in regional banks earlier this year when you have this mismatch between assets and liabilities uh, and you have this hemorrhage uh, from banks that don't have access to broader funding bases and cheaper costs of capital. Listen, I want to call back to something that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about job markets because we have just a great quote here from Andreas Steno Larsen uh, from a show called Is the Labor Market on the Verge of a Downturn where he talks about some really interesting correlations. Uh, this is on the essential tier today, August 31st. Let's take a look at that clip. If we look at uh, the job openings posted by SMEs, um, we now have a crystal clear trend as well towards fewer openings relative to two, three quarters ago. And there's typically a very neat correlation between the amount of openings posted by SMEs and the average duration of uh, unemployment. Uh, I have a chart showing uh, the average duration uh, of unemployment in light blue and then um, the NFIB survey conducted among SMEs um, on the amount of job postings that they post on a monthly basis. And we now have a clear signal here as well. Uh, we should expect the average duration of unemployment to go up as a consequence of a lack of job postings. Uh, the lead is roughly 11 months uh, from um, the actual timing of, of the postings until 
we see that move in um, unemployment and, and the duration of unemployment. So everything we see today in the surveys will matter in 2024. That's what I'm trying to, 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 to uh, come across with here. So the evidence that we gather in these surveys um, does not necessarily mean that we have a recession around the corner. It means that we have a recession um, in the making for 2024. Uh, and I think that is of relevance uh, relative to the current base case um, among economists and market participants. You know, Warren, one of the fun things about Real Vision is we get to look at this uh, from different perspectives, different points of view. Andreas Steno Larson, of course, an economist, looking at a really interesting correlation there uh, between the amount of openings of SMEs, small and medium enterprises, smaller businesses, and the average duration of unemployment. Let me just read again his conclusion there. I know there's a lot of material, but I want to read this key point just so folks understand it. Quote, we should expect the average duration of unemployment to go up as a consequence of a lack of job postings. The lead is roughly 11 months from the actual timing of the posting. So again, we're talking about variable lags. Uh, but to me, this certainly sounds like a bearish sign for labor markets. Warren, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. Um, and it's interesting for me to see the reaction of asset markets really to the job openings data, which is what you know Andreas is kind of central to what Andreas is saying here. And so we saw job openings fall dramatically here recently. And yields dropped, which that's been the pressure on equities. So equities rallied. Gold dollar drops because you read this as the Fed's going to be able to be more dovish going forward. Dollar drops, that's actually good for stocks and for gold. So you see gold rally, you've seen oil rally, you've seen basically a rally across the board, which is heat off of rates. Um, and it's really a, a soft landing kind of trade for right now. Uh, the question is, it's really difficult to tell the difference between the beginning of a soft landing and a hard landing. It's really about where does it stop? And so job openings falling, if you look, there's a lot of charts and evidence out there if you see Typically, the momentum of job openings doesn't just stop here. It continues lower into a recession. So, of course, you could, and, and I think there are a lot of problems with the JOLTS data in general, and we've kind of torn it apart, but you could have a lot of these job openings that are kind of ephemeral anyways. So, again, that kind of points to this fog of are we in a soft landing, hard landing environment? And, and to me, that's it's going to be really difficult it's going to be really difficult to tell the difference here in the very early stages. And so I think a really important thing is to look for when that uh, bad news stops being good news for asset markets. So for right now, bad news and so the, the, the loosening labor economy is being received positively by the stock market and by assets in general. When we see the expectation of what's going to happen with central banks and liquidity. Correct. So we're, our concern is much more on monetary policy right now not on the health of the economy. Once that bad news flips and is read by markets as, um, as actual bad news, then that means that the, the focus has shifted to the economy in a possible recession at that point. So that to me is the little fine-grained things we're gonna have to track, the data we're gonna have to track right. um, as, that, as it comes in to see if we're going into the beginning of a soft landing or, or hard landing. Not yeah. Just that's don't that. yeah, exactly the challenge. Uh, in a moment like this. Uh, here's a great question that comes to us from Trillion X. Macro, one of our loyal viewers who always has great questions. And boy, Warren, this is right in your wheelhouse. Uh, Warren, when do you think WTI prices can break above 90 bucks a barrel? And if yes, is it because demand is improving? I say uh, that we're going to break above $90 a barrel in the next month. 
And I think it is because demand is improving uh, globally. But uh, obviously, the oil market is always an intersection of supply and demand. And the the proximate cause is you have a positive demand backdrop, but you can't forget that the Saudis have removed so much oil from the market. And so that's why we saw last week firms like Goldman stop publishing their real-time inventory tracker data because they couldn't believe the draws they were seeing. And there's a there are a bunch of reasons why that could be a little fuzzy, but the bottom line is the oil market is definitely in a deficit right now. It's being supported by a combination of Saudi cuts and increasing demand. The concerns over China are overdone, in my opinion, that we're still coming from a low base. And we we basically double topped at $88 on Brent. And I think we break above that here in the next impulse higher and that we'll touch $100 a barrel before this year's over. That's my view on oil. Yeah, and by the way, for those not following this market as closely as Warren and Trillion XWTI, October 23 futures, CL1 on the New York Merck trading on my screen, 83 spot, 57 up. I call it about 2.4% on the day, about two bucks a barrel. And one thing we always look at, because short-term timing in oil in any market is really difficult, but it, the, my favorite short-term timing tool is positioning within managed money group uh, from COT, that's hedge funds and CTAs. You basically want to go on the other side of hedge funds and CTAs. We came into this bull market run when the Saudis cut the, the, their production uh, with hedge funds at the shortest level that they've been uh, since COVID basically, and even going before COVID. Uh, and we've run those short positions down, but with that China worry of just a, a couple of weeks ago, the China worries have caused them to re-up some of those short positions. So to me, I think that's the fuel for this bull market. That's why I have confidence that as the data comes in, as the draws emerge in the market, you have a lot of buyers that are they're short. They're going to have to come in and cover their positions and buy up that crude oil and drive it higher. So in the short term, I feel pretty good about oil. I think we still have upside. You can't get structurally bullish on oil yet because there's so much spare capacity that has to come in. So I'm not, I'm not saying this is like a, a long-term call. This is a much shorter term towards the end of the year, late cycle. Again, oil is a good late cycle asset um, prediction on my end. Uh, here comes another question on energy from Ralph Humphrey, another one of our regular viewers who always has great questions. What are Warren's thoughts on Nat Gas WTI, which obviously we already just covered, uh, and other energy-related instruments? So natural gas and other energy-related uh, markets. What are your thoughts, Warren? Uh, I think that I'm generally bullish on natural gas going forward. It's not a market I, I study all as close as I study oil because it's it's so weather dominated, honestly. So if you spot me a normalized winter this year, I think we go decently higher for natural gas going forward. But uh, the big variable is always winter. We've had a break from adding export capacity to the U.S. this year. And that starts again next year. You know, we have a structural tailwind in the U.S. for natural gas exports. And I think that uh, it pays to, over time, as whether you take the weather factor out, it pays to have kind of beta exposure to natural gas because of the export story. Obviously, the geopolitical stuff is going on with Russia and Ukraine. By the way, one more uh, point to close this out on. This is also from Ralph Humphrey. He got us the exact George Soros quote. Boy, is this a great one. Quote, it's not whether you're right or wrong, but how much money you make when you're right and how much you lose when you're wrong. That's right. That's exactly right. That's uh, 
And I think he, if you read Soros enough, you know that he actually, uh, in, you know, Soros is great money manager and kind of philosopher. So I know there's like a political side, but I, I look at him just as a hedge fund manager with a really interesting thoughts on the markets. And he actually embraces being, and that to me is, I, I think, a, a big takeaway from his uh, philosophy is that you should embrace being wrong. That it's okay. It's going to happen. Everyone's going to be wrong. Uh, accept it. Yeah. By the way, another important point there, if you want to see markets clearly, forget about your political perspective. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. You've got to just see things clearly for the numbers. It's one of the reasons why uh, doing what we do is so much fun is it's actually data driven. Uh, you actually get an answer at the end of the day, which, you know, unfortunately isn't true for politics all the time. Absolutely. Hey, Warren, I always enjoy these conversations. This has been a fantastic chat. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with? Uh, I think the uh, just to reiterate where our positions are, we are maxed out for our cash position. I think you're getting a paid to have some cash on the sidelines. September is the worst month historically for the S&P 500. So, you know, you have to take seasonality with a grain of salt, but this is the only month with a negative return profile historically. Uh, so keep your, I, I'm keeping my cash, uh, pile ready and we're going to see how this data, uh, evolves and we're going to be flexible. So those are my thoughts. Uh, Warren, thanks again so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. And thanks again, everybody for watching and listening to Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern time. That's for the last summer Friday. Uh, that's going to be an early show at 1 p.m. Last one of the summer. Then we go back to 4 p.m. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great day. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 